You are listening to the Gateway Church in Spring Lake, Michigan. To learn more, visit us at thegatewaygh.com. Well, this morning we are going to be tackling God's Word. John 19, you can turn there. We're going to be there in a little bit. We started the series preaching through the book of John in January, taking a chapter a week, and we have come to John chapter 19. If you fast forward just two more weeks, we got 20 and 21, and by the end of June, we will have wrapped up our entire series in John, and so don't miss these next two weeks. It's going to be fantastic. Um, we have made it, church, to the, to the passage that's called the Passion. It's the Passion Narrative. And as I encouraged you last week to read chapter 18 and 19 with the same sort of intensity that you may have experienced when you watched the Passion of the Christ back in 2004. How many of you guys saw the Passion of the Christ when it came out? Remember those feelings when you read and reread uh, John 18 and 19. And my encouragement is to look at the passage with awe and with wonder. And I believe that God, He does this all the time, but He will reveal things to you as you're reading and rereading these passages, and He will illuminate the Scripture. And for me this week, the, the, the biggest thing for me was I wanted to read it with a grateful heart grateful for what God has done for me, for us. And uh, we are so blessed to have a Savior who has done incredible things. And so, um, so anyway, John 19, I've preached out of this chapter so many times. Uh, so when I was a kid's pastor, some of you know that I was a children's pastor for almost nine years. And uh, we would preach out of this uh, on occasion, especially around Easter time. For us here, for my family, we've now been here over 10 Easter's, and we always come to John chapter 19. And uh, I was tempted to go back and see what I could resurrect, pun intended. A couple of you guys remember, not really, just kidding. Uh, so the resurrection story. I'm, I'm not, nobody's doing me any favors, okay, uh, no, no problem, but I wanted to know, and I, and I really never do that, but, uh, but I want you to know that God is doing a new thing. He is doing a new thing in our hearts and in our lives. In fact, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. In my Bible, I've got it underlined and actually uh, highlighted as well, and I want you to underline this. If you're taking notes, put it in the margin. This is what the word of the Lord is, I believe, for us in this season as our church. Look what it says. This is, he says, he said to me, it is done. Whoops, nope, that's not it. That's uh, verse 6. Verse 5 says, he who is seated on the throne said this. Now mark this. I am making everything new. I am making everything new new. And when we look at the passion narrative, when we look at what marks our Christian heritage, it's the fact that Jesus, he rose from the grave and he, every day of our lives, he's making everything new. And this marks something new for us today. Pastor Pete mentioned our groundbreaking ceremony. That's something new that's happening here at the Gateway Church. 
for after service or at the end of the service today, we are going to be baptizing. We've got eight people lined up, and I just want to sow a seed here. We will be doing spontaneous baptisms as well. If you're here and the Lord is stirring, you get saved, or maybe you are saved, and you're saying, man, I've not planned, but I will do it today. Today is your day. We've got a t-shirt for you. We've got shorts and a towel. No problems. We would love to baptize you today because God is doing something new. And you can decide right now and be thinking about that. Pray about it. I believe that today many will get saved, that there will be someone in each service, I believe, at least, that will give their hearts to the Lord or come back to Jesus. And you know, I was thinking, God makes everything new. Where you've struggled in the past, I believe that God is doing a new thing inside of you. Where you've had doubts, I believe God is doing a new thing. Where you've had trouble in the past, God is doing a new thing. Where you felt behind or you felt disconnected, God is doing a new thing. And you're a part of that. And what God wants you to know, I believe, and I, I wrote this in my notes this morning, uh, that God is doing a supernatural breakthroughs on our groundbreaking Sunday. And I believe that. And so just be open to what God is doing inside of you. He's making all things new. He's bringing new life to marriages. He's bringing new life to relationships. The things that work that have frustrated you, he's doing a new thing. I would just declare that. This summer, 2017, for some of you, is God is going to open up some doors. He's going to fulfill some dreams in your lives. Your finances, he's doing a new thing. Amen? Right? Physically, God is doing a new thing, and we want to pray and believe that that is exactly what God wants to do. So I'm going to pause and just ask God from this moment forward, that our hearts will be ready to receive everything he has for us. God, we pause right now asking that your word would become true in our own experience. That you, It says you make everything new. And God, in each of these areas that I just mentioned, I pray that you would pour out your supernatural presence and power and that you would make everything new. God, I pray that you would just uh, do what only you can do. And God, we want to be a part of that. And we want to be open to what you're doing. And God, we will give you the praise. We'll give you all the glory for this. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, a new thing. Amen. 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 <laughs> awesome. So John chapter 19. Before we get to the passage, I want to encourage you right now to think about your greatest need right now. What is it? Uh, many times when you think of your greatest need, sometimes uh, what happens is your need is a need because it's out of your hands. It's, it's out of your control, right? Your health need, right? You know, there's something happening inside of you and you, don't ha you can't put a finger on it or the doctors can't figure it out or the medicine hasn't worked, whatever the case, it's out of your control. Or maybe your greatest need is a relationship uh, restoration that is needed and it seems like it's out of your hands. Or maybe something at your work or maybe it's a vehicle or maybe your greatest need is in raising your kids and with what's happening at home, right? There are things that are out of our control, 
And it's important for us to understand that in our lives. And, it's, and for those that like to control things, any control freaks here, let's just be honest, right? There's a few of you, I'm sure. For those of you that like to control, and even if you don't like to control, it can be frustrating when things are out of your hand. When, when you think, man, I can't do anything about this. Well, as we look at John 19, as I was reading and studying, there was a new idea that kind of approached in my study, a fresh approach, seeing something that I had not noticed before. In John 18 and 19, the Holy Spirit, through His direction, I noticed an idea that emerged within this passion narrative. And this is the big idea, that Jesus is in perfect control over every event within the passion. Every single detail, when you read John 18 and 19 and into 20, he's in control of it all. Let me go back to 18 for a second, give you a couple ideas around that. When Jesus said, I am, when the, when the uh, uh, soldiers came to take him away and the crowd fell, 500 people on their faces when Jesus said, I am, he was in control. When Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, we talked about that last week a little bit, right? Jesus takes control, and he heals him on the spot. He fixes it. He was in control. Through the arrest, you say, oh, maybe things got out of control. No, he was bound, but he allowed it to happen. Jesus escaped many times earlier, escaped the crowds, but this time he allowed it to happen at the trial with Annas, at the trial with the high priest Caiaphas, and before Pilate, and in fact, this is a quote, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, he's saying, if it was of this world, you guys would be in trouble, right? He would have taken control, but he was actually in control in that moment. And this idea of control continues right into chapter 19. And actually, I think it intensifies and he takes control over his final sentence, sentencing, over the crucifixion, over his death, over his burial. And then we're going to do something we haven't done uh, in, in this entire series. We're actually going to take a part of chapter 20 today, too. Is everybody okay with that? And um, he, he, con he controlled his resurrection as well. And I want to talk about these things and look at them and believe that God is going to speak to your hearts in regards to these things. And so the first one is this, that Jesus was in control of his final sentencing. He controlled his final sentence. Turn with me to John chapter, six, or John chapter 19. You should be there. Look what it says in verse number one. In verse number one, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now I want to pause here for a second. Because if you understand what a flogging is, you're thinking, if you are in control, there is absolutely no way that anyone is going to hit you with a leather strap, with pieces of sharp metal and sharp glass and rocks, right? Am I right? See, a flogging was this sort of beating. 39 lashes were allowed in the Roman government. 40 lashes uh, was allowed in the Jewish law. And they would beat you to the point of near death. That's what a flogging meant. You say, well, if that was the truth, why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, it was to fulfill Scripture, Isaiah 53, right? By his stripes, you are healed, and I am healed. What's interesting is in this, in this uh, sentencing here, 
we see, and all throughout uh, John, we saw that death had stalked Jesus many times. In chapter 5, he was persecuted, and they wanted to kill him early on. We read about that in John chapter 5. In John chapter 7, he was unwilling to walk through Judah, remember? And why was that? Because they wanted to kill him, right? John chapter 8, uh, it's quoted, verse 37, You seek to kill me, Jesus told the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In verse 40 of that same chapter, uh, we see that he says, You are seeking to kill me, you, a man who has told you the truth. And in verse 59 of chapter 8, they picked up stones and were ready to kill Jesus, and he slipped out by the power of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 10, he says, the Father and I are one. He's revealing who he is. He's saying, look, I am equal with God, and they wanted to stone him then. Chapter 11, he says this, from this day forward, uh, it says this in Scripture, this, from this day forward, they plan to kill him. On all of these occasions, death had kind of been lingering. It was almost inevitable. They wanted to kill Jesus, but Jesus controlled all of that. But at this moment, when we read in verse 19 that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, I don't want you to misunderstand. Jesus was in complete control even in that. He was controlled his final sentencing. Let's look at verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he is claimed to be the Son of God. Verse 8, uh, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. He was in perfect control. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? Pilate's kind of puffing up his shoulders saying, don't you know who I am? And look at Jesus' response in verse 11. I love this. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who is handed over to me uh, to you is guilty of a greater sin. He just recognizes and he says to Pilate, look, you are not in control. I'm in perfect control here. And even in verse 16, it says, finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. At that moment, that was not Pilate's doing. It was the Holy Spirit working all these things together. And again, Jesus, he controlled his final sentence. The second thing I saw is that he controlled his crucifixion. Let's look at it. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Verse 20, many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of, of the Jews protested to Pilate, says, do not write king of the Jews, but, this, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. P uh, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. God used Pilate to write this, and it was all prophetic in nature. Verse 25, uh, or verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes. Watch this. They divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the un undergarments remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And then they said, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Why did that happen? Jesus is in control. Look at this. 
This happened so that Scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Again, we see that Jesus is in control. You're going to hear me say that again. Even in verse 25, as Jesus cares for his mother, let's look at it. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, he's saying, look, I've got to control this. I want to, I want to make sure my mom is okay, right? And the disciple whom he loved, that's John, was standing right there. And he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple said, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple, that's John, took care, took her into his home. And I was reading this and you think, okay, Jesus is controlling all these things. And what happened at the crucifixion, every nail, every thorn that was placed on his head, every drop of blood was controlled by Jesus. And even to the little details of him taking care of his mother. Now I was thinking about that. Okay, for us, I believe that Jesus sees the smallest details of our lives. Every little thing. I think he says, I see it and I care about it. He says that to each of us. I see what you're dealing with. I see that you need a friend. And he's taking care of that behind the scenes. I, I see the need to help raise your kids. And he's saying, look, I'm there to give you wisdom and insight. Some of you are saying, I need a job. And God says, I know your need. I'm working on your behalf. For me, I said, I need a car, right? Since Jessica totaled my car a few weeks ago, right? And I'm saying to myself, Jesus, do you even know, right, my need? And of course, he's working things out on our behalf in each of these cases. And he controlled his crucifixion, and that's what we see. The next thing I saw that is that he controlled his death. Let's look at it, verse 28. Verse 28, we're kind of making our way through the chapter 19. It says, knowing, uh, later, knowing that everything had now been finished. That's a huge statement. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, there's a whole lot here in that little phrase. I've preached whole sermons on just that little phrase. We see the Lord, we see Jesus in his full humanity, fully God, fully man there. We don't have time to explore that. But the idea that I want you to see for today is that everything had now been finished. All these details had been worked out according to the Holy Spirit, and God was in control. We see it again in verse 30. It says, when he had received the drink, Jesus says... It is finished, right? And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He's the one. When that word there, it is finished, it's actually just one word, teletelestai, uh, I think is how you say it. And it means that it's been finished, it's been paid for, it's almost like a business deal, it's done. In fact, some commentators say it's the most powerful moment on the cross is when Jesus said, it is finished. And it was finished. He's the one that controlled all those details. Turn back with me to John chapter 10 just for a moment. John chapter 10, verse 17. We saw Jesus talk about this earlier on. It says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. This is Jesus talking. Only to take it up again. And then he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. What I want you to know, church, is that God was in control. Jesus was in perfect control. And uh, you, when, they, when they heard Jesus say that in John chapter uh, 10, uh, what, what is the response? Look what it says. The Jews who heard these were divided. This divided them. He's saying, look, I am the Son of God. And it says many of them said, he is demon-possessed by a, he's possessed by a demon. Can demons open the blind man? It says, and then they say, why are we even listening to him? And if you think about it, if Jesus was not who he said he was, he would have been raving mad, right? But if you can do it, if you can really lay down your life and really have the authority to take it up, which in John chapter 19 and 20, we see it coming to happen, that's what happened. Jesus did it. He controlled his death. Let's look at it. Verse 31, uh, to back in John chapter 19. We see through 31 through 35. I won't take the time to read it. Uh, we know that it's the day of preparation. That means it's the day before the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, uh, the rule was that you could not do any work, especially trying to bury someone or crucify someone. And so they were trying to hurry up all of these things. Um, and there's uh, and they're trying to kill the guys. They come along the uh, the way, and uh, uh, sometimes people would last on a cross crucified for up to two days. And they would uh, so they would come and they said, "Let's break their legs." And they'd break their legs so they couldn't hold themselves up to get a breath, and uh, that that would uh, expedite the process of their final breath. Uh, by asphyxiation. And uh, what's interesting, the soldiers came to Jesus to break his legs. And they're like, wait, we, we saw it in verse 30. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit. That was at three o'clock in the afternoon. For six hours, he was on the cross. Instead, they pierced Jesus in the side. You say, well, why did they do that? Well, let's look at it. Verse 36 says, these things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. Again, perfect control. Prophecy being fulfilled on so many levels. It's incredible. Jesus was in control. And not only did he control his death, but he controlled his burial as well. We see that as we move in to the next passage there uh, in 38 uh, through uh, through 40, um, we see that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And I want to pause there for a second. Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was two to three miles out of town. Uh, but Joseph was part of the 70 elders, kind of the Jewish Supreme Court. We find out in this small passage that he was a follower of Christ, but kind of secretly from a distance. And, uh, and what we see is that he goes to Pilate. What are the chances of someone that was secretly following Jesus that could know that that was had a presence or had the ability to approach Pilate in that moment to get an audience with Pilate? And then the fact that Joseph had a plot of land that was nearby the city. Right. And then, of course, Nicodemus is there and brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. Uh, or yeah, aloes, they're giving Jesus a royal burial. You say, well, why is this so important? Why is this so amazing? Which it is, you'll see. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. 
Isaiah 53, it's the great passage. You've read it before. Jesus is like a sheep, right? Uh, he's gone astray, or we're like a sheep gone astray. Uh, he comes, he's like the good shepherd. He lays down his life for us, right? Um, it's all in that he's crushed for our iniquities. Um, uh, he suffered, uh, all those things. But look at verse 9. Uh, this this kind of jumped out at me this week. It says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So the first part there says he was assigned with the grave with, with the wicked and with the rich in his death. You say, well, what's going on here? How could this be that he was viewed as wicked and he was going to be buried as a rich man? Well, this was written seven centuries before Jesus was crucified. I want you to know that, first of all. This was one of those many scriptures that had to be fulfilled, right? How did people that were crucifying Jesus view him? As wicked, right? But then to be buried as a rich man, kind of in the same sentence, how is that possible? Well, the disciples weren't rich. There had to be someone that could step up, that had an audience with Pilate, that was a follower of Jesus, that had a plot of land nearby, how many know that God was working all those details so his word could be fulfilled? It blows my mind when you start to think about it. Jesus controlled even his burial. Wow. And then let's move into chapter 20. Jesus also controlled his resurrection. And we talk about this a lot at Easter. And shame on us that we don't talk about this more. But we got an opportunity to look at this resurrection story. I want you to actually turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. It's a little more dramatic maybe than John's uh, account. Look at Matthew chapter 28 verse 1. It says this. It says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And then look what happens. Look how Jesus was in complete control. It says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to, to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he had laid. And we see this, and it's incredible. In John's account, turn back to John chapter 19, a little different perspective of the resurrection. In John chapter 20, I'm sorry, uh, it says early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went up to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. She went and saw or, and got Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John, right? They, it says they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple, they started for the tomb, right? This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I think John had a little piece in this. It says they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I thought that was kind of fun, you know, maybe a little competitive there, I don't know. He bent down over, looked at it, the, stripes, uh, the strips of linen laying there, but did not go in. Peter, uh, so John stops. 
But Peter, we know Peter, he's like, man, I'm not thinking. He runs right into the tomb. He came along beside him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the clothes that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He had to mention it twice. Isn't that funny? And then it says, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Of course, Jesus was the one that was controlling the resurrection. But what we see here is that John, an eyewitness, saw the events and if there was any doubt in John's mind before that of who Jesus was, remember what John, he's, he's writing this late in his life. He's the last of the apostles to write of, of the, the fourth gospel, right? Look what it says, verse 31. But these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I want to remind you of that. I like what one commentator, how he put it. He says, again, the purpose of John in all this gospel, every account is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have eternal life in his name. Amen? Amen. Then it says, John, an eyewitness of the cross and its aftermath, records this for us as true testimony. It's the truth. What it tells us, along with the resurrection, is that Jesus is the death conqueror. That's an incredible statement. It says he has brought about his own death, controlled the events around and after his death, controlled his own barrier, burial, and then exerted the power to rise from the dead. He is the divine the death conqueror. And then he goes on, this commentator says, this is important to know because the promise for each and every one of us, for every believer, is that we will rise from the dead so that with our new bodies, newly created, and we will be joined to our glorified souls in a form that suits us for perfect usefulness and joy in heaven. In Jesus, he controlled it all. He did it all for us. To the letter, every detail, every prophecy. And the point for us today is that you need to know is that without the cross, without the resurrection, nothing else matters. Nothing. For the disciples, they experienced this. They were eyewitnesses. And almost to uh, every single disciple gave their lives for that truth. They died, martyred. For that truth. For us, if it wasn't true, we would be here and it would be silly that we're here. I've got my notes. We'd be stupid. <laughs> uh, we'd be pitiful, right? Uh, that death would be the end. And we know according to scripture that it's not. And the reason it's not is because in chapter 20, we read about the empty tomb. And it speaks loud and true. When you think of other world religions, there is a tomb for Muhammad and for, Bo uh, for Buddha, for Krishna, for Confucius, for Joseph Smith. Listen, only Jesus has an empty tomb. And you got to know that. And an empty tomb means that there's a risen Savior. And because of that, your sins are forgiven. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I love this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. 
Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I was thinking about it. My sin, your sin, the things in our lives, the, the, the cheating, the, your temper, the abuse of alcohol, uh, your self-centeredness, your porn addiction, the abortion you had. All of that is on the cross and you are forgiven. That's the truth of the gospel. And God was in control and he's doing a new thing. Amen? And so if you feel stuck today, or if you're still struggling with your addiction, or if there's fear or anxiety or some sort of relationship trauma in your life, I want you to know that God knows about it, He sees it, and He's in control of your circumstances. He's in control. And I love that. And I want you to know that God is here today, and He wants to touch that dry, that difficult place in your life, where you feel like you've been most disconnected and he wants to come in and he wants to meet you right where you are. I'm going to ask the team to come and to prepare and uh, as we close and all those that are being baptized, just hold out just for a moment. We'll dismiss you in a second. But I want you to turn everybody, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Let me pause there for a moment. If you're here this morning and you have given your heart to Jesus and you have Jesus in your heart and you're living for him today, I want you just to raise your hand right where you are. Just give a kind of a public testimony of that. All right. See, that's what Jesus has done. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away. And look what it says, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What John 19 describes is seen right here. He's taken our sin, and he's covered our sin, and he looks at us as if we're righteous. And if you raised your hand a moment ago, Realizing what's already happened inside your heart. You've got an incredible story to tell. But I want to talk to those that didn't raise your hand a few seconds ago. And I want you to know that the same thing that happened for a lot of us here can be the reality for you as well. And I believe that God wants to do that. He's been pursuing you. That feeling in your heart right now, that stirring, that challenge, God is stirring because he, he loves you so much. And He wants you to surrender your life. We call it salvation. And I want to offer the gift of salvation to you this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, or maybe you knew Him at one time and you've walked away, we talked about that a little last week, and you say, man, I need to come back to Jesus. 
In either case, if you need to come back to the Lord or you want to just get saved, maybe it's the first time, I want you just to lift your hand right where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you, but if you're here and that's you, I want you to raise your hand. Who is the Holy Spirit speaking to in first service? Saints, I know you're praying. Just, I want to just wait here for a second. If the Lord is working in your heart, and you're saying, yes, I need to get my life right with Jesus. Raise your hand. Anyone for service? Okay. All right, now I'm going to ask that you close your eyes, and this is between you and the Lord. I'm curious to know if there's anyone here that needs a breakthrough of some sort in their lives. I want you to raise your hand. If you're believing God for a breakthrough, because we talked about that, I believe it's a word from God that on our groundbreaking Sunday, that God is going to supernaturally break through. Just raise your hand if that's you. Yeah, if you need a breakthrough. We're going to pray for you here momentarily. Or if you feel stuck in any way, or you feel dry, and you're saying, man, I just need God. I need the Holy Spirit in a special way. Just lift up your hand. Yep, lots of hands. Praise God. We're going to pray for you. Put your hands down. One more thing. But as I talk about God being in control, I realize that there are times that we get our mind or our eyes off of Jesus. When we think about our greatest need, whatever that might be, sometimes we forget to trust the Lord. <laughs> this morning, God is calling us to a total dependence on Him. And if you're facing something today that you really need to put your trust in Him, I want you just to lift your hand as well. And maybe that's related to that breakthrough that's needed, I'm not sure. But if you're saying, boy, that's me, that's good. That's good. I want to pray for us. Lord, I pray, God, that you are working, you're stirring inside of us. Lots of hands saying, I need breakthrough. And God, I pray that you would be working those things out, that it's a new day, and God, that you're doing a new thing. For those that are stuck or those that are feeling dry spiritually, God, I pray that you would wave, just to crash over them with a wave of your fresh anointing power. And for those that are struggling with trust, those that are wondering, God, have you forgot about me? Or, Lord, where are you in the midst of my struggle? God, I pray that there would be a total dependence on you, no matter what. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We're going to stand here in just a moment. And we're going to worship in a great song. We've, we've been singing it a couple times here, yeah, but it's still kind of new. I love it fits perfectly what we just talked about. But we're also moving into a time of water baptism. I want to talk about it momentarily. Water baptism represents exactly what we just talked about. The death and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Word of God says that we are dead with Christ and we are raised to life with Him. And water baptism is just an example of that. And it's a beautiful thing. And I want to just ch challenge you uh, with this. That if you've been saved and not been baptized, today's your day. You say, well, I didn't prepare. Well, 
we prepared for you, right? And we call it spontaneous baptism, and on many occasions this happens, and we've got five or six first service, a few second service, but we would love to offer you this opportunity. Uh, we're going to stand here momentarily. The lights are going to go dim, and all you got to do is slip outside the back, and you'll meet Pastor Pete in the lobby, and if you're not prepared, we've got a t-shirt, we've got shorts, and a towel for you, and you'll be just, just like it's always meant to be. And we want to encourage you to do that. And uh, we also have something special uh, first service here that we're going to be doing. Um, and we'll explain that in a minute. But uh, and my only encouragement and why I put in my notes, why would you wait? Today's your day. Even if you just didn't give your heart to the Lord today, this, if this is the first opportunity since you've been saved, today's your day to be baptized. And so let's do that. Let's all stand. And Bobby, why don't you lead us and uh, let's prepare. And Pastor Pete, you can slide out and uh, let's just set our hearts before the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. We've got a couple planned for baptism, second service. If you want to be baptized, second service, just stick around. We'd be more than happy to do it. Otherwise, go in the grace of God. Have a great week, great afternoon. And at 6 o'clock, we'll see you at the property. Amen? Amen. See you later. We love you. Thank you for listening to this week's message from the Gateway Church. If you'd like to find out more about our church, such as service times, giving, and ways to get connected, visit us at thegatewaygh.com.